do this. All right. Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on season six, episode seven, Charisma. 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 Uniqueness. Nerve. Talent. Just kidding. It's about a fucking cult leader. Yeah. They're like, oh, we thought it was about fucking drag race. (laughs) All right. Charisma. Charisma. Opening scene, Benson's doing a walk and talk with a doctor in the hospital. A 12 and a half year old girl came in. She's pregnant and having contractions, but it's like way too early. The doctor says her name is Melanie and she refuses to tell them who and where her parents are. It looks like from scarring she's given birth before. Fucking Jesus Christ. So Benson says ACS will arrange for foster care, but the doctor wants her to stay in the hospital for the next 10 weeks until after the baby is born. He's like, she's not going anywhere. Fucking full on hospital bed rest. Mm -hmm. Benson goes into Melanie's room. Melanie says she has had a baby before, but he died. And her mom said that he was in heaven or whatever. Benson asks if it was Melanie's mom's idea that she go to the hospital. And Melanie won't say anything. Benson asks where her mom lives so that she can go get her and bring her to the hospital. Melanie's so cute. She's like just a little red haired, little freckly. I've seen her in things and maybe it's just this episode. Yeah, there was nothing super standout-ish in her IMDb. But I kept seeing Lindsay Lohan in the parent trap in her. You know what I mean? But maybe that's what it what it was. But I also could be having like flashbacks of this episode because it is fucked up. It's you know. Oh, I remember seeing this Mm -hmm. one being like Yeah. It was so I mean, David Koresh. It was huge when we were kids. It's just such a zeitgeisty fucking thing. Yeah. Anyways, Melanie says that she's not supposed to tell. Benson says if she were her mom, she'd want to be right there with her. Melanie writes her address down. Benson asks where the dad is. And Melanie says it's her baby's father, her husband, Abraham. She's 12 and a half. Yeah. What the fuck? Okay, so Benson and backup officers arrive at the address that Melanie gave her. Abraham should be at the house because Melanie says he doesn't work. Benson knocks on the door and four of the most cutie patootie little fucking kids answer. A man comes to the door. He's got like a snake tattoo on his arm. And I've seen him in things and maybe it's just this episode. No, it's not. This Abraham dude is actor Jeff Kober. Okay, he was Mm -hmm. in Tank Girl. He was in Enough... Sons of Anarchy, The Walking Dead, New Girl, also something you wouldn't recognize him from, but almost 200 episodes of General Hospital. He's been in a million things and he plays a really good bad guy. Bad guy. Yes. Who was he in Tank Girl? Um, Just one of the bad water guys? No, he was Booga. So he had like full face prosthetics. Oh, Ice-T was in that. Was he? He was He was one of the kangaroo men guys that was in love. Yeah. Him and Tank Girl were in love, I think. Or no. No, that Booga was her boyfriend. Okay, yeah. And he was the, like, it's, this was Jeff Kober. He had like a full Planet of the Apes fucking prosthetic yeah. as a werewolf slash kangaroo guy. Or He's a kangaroo you know? mutant man, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That was, I can see the face of, mm-hmm. yeah. Who was he in enough? Just one of the bad guys going after her that her husband had hired? No, he was an FBI agent. Oh, God, I love that yeah. fucking movie. I know. I was so happy to be able to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he had a bigger role in Sons of Anarchy. He was Jacob Hale. I got super into that show for a while, but if anybody else knows. Okay. Okay, so this guy, this guy, he's... He's in lots of stuff. He's in lots of stuff. He's... The leader. He's Abraham. So he comes to the door. Got a snake tattoo. Benson lets him know that she's a fucking cop. She's with SVU and asks if he is Abraham. He asks her why. She tells him things will be a lot easier for him if he just takes a step outside. He just straight up says no and slams the door in her face. Which, yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. She's like, mm, you you should come outside real quick, just like on the front step. And he's like, I just, just put one of your little big toes out over the <laughs> threshold. Dip it in, just dip it in the cooling waters of the front porch. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Benson calls for extra units to the house. Then gunshots are heard. And bullets shoot behind the officers at a cop car. Glass explodes. They take cover and they're all looking at the windows. The camera shot is like panning to windows. Can't figure out where it's coming from. Benson screams, 1013, 1013, shots fired into her fucking radio theme song. <sighs> Intense. Now, fucking responders and SWAT and all that shit are on the scene. SVU as well. Abraham owns the apartment and he will not talk to the police. They keep trying to get a hold of him. He's not answering pigeon delivery, owls, St. <laughs> Bernard's with the barrel that's full of water, but it's actually like a note. He refuses to blow steam from his mouth on the window and write anything. It's just crazy. Yeah. Look, it's backwards. We don't know what it means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no phone service in the house, and the electric company said they shut it off fucking eight years ago. Toots tells them that the neighbors have seen up to three dozen people in the home at a time, mostly women and children. The neighbors say they're all quiet and weird, which, yeah. Mm -hmm. The only issue they ever had was a noise complaint 10 years ago about construction being done in the middle of the night. That's it. Otherwise, they're just quiet and weird. So SWAT approaches the door. The sergeant thinks the hostages are in the living room and all exits are covered. Shots are heard again and SWAT fucking busts in. Immediately you hear a guy calling for EMS. Like, get fucking EMS here now. Ugh. SVU goes in. I mean, the guy runs out and collapses like, on the stairs. Like, this is to set up the drama that is waiting them inside. Mm-hmm. So SVU runs up to him and he's like, oh my God, Abraham is gone and everyone else is dead. So mm -hmm. they fucking go in. There are candles lit. There's no light coming into the home at all. All the windows are covered. The walls are covered in like Jesus type lettering, like fucking not scripture, but whatever. Some of it Just I'm like sure is. Bible. There, there's, there's scripture written on the walls, but there's also probably what they would consider prophecy from mm -hmm. yeah. Abraham. Also, the beds and their belongings are just everywhere. The people yeah. that were in the home are all dead on the floor, including the fucking kids. <sighs> so the camera's like showing blood all over the clothes and there's like a baby's arm and a pacifier covered in blood and... It's showing yeah. a close up of everybody's faces and it's just being it's just like dramatic because it is. And there's like little kids clothing with blood on it. It's like, look at this emotionally provocative scene mm -hmm. and it does its fucking job. Oh, yeah. Especially that little pacifier in the baby hand. I was like, <gasps> oh. yeah, the PJs and oh. mm -hmm. mm -mm. Benson shines her flashlight on a mirror on the wall above all the bodies. It's a giant portrait of Abraham. Then she walks away into another room and sees one of the little boys that answered the door earlier and he's dead. It's fucking sad. It's so sad. Also, I forgot. Um, I think I picked this up later on in the episode, but another reason this guy might look familiar is because I kept seeing um, 1990s Steven Tyler because of his long hair. Like he I was looked seeing, I was seeing, um, who's that guy with the big teeth? Steven Tyler. No, no, no. The actor. Gary. No. Uh, uh, Gary Busey. Gary Bu I was seeing Gary Busey. Anyway, everybody's dead. This whole scene is to just let us know how this is fucking up all of the cops coming in there. What, what yeah. are you laughing about? Just because you were like, anyways, everyone's dead. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. Can you feel my energy distancing myself from the scene? <laughs> Yeah. So back at the squad room, Craig is giving 
every fucking government employee in Manhattan the rundown. CSU found an old tunnel under the house that led to a vacant building on the next block. Abraham Ophion has no criminal record, but they think he used a fake name. Really? <laughs> yeah. Ophion is Greek for serpent. Mm. Also in Greek mythology, Ophion is the Greek Titan King of heaven. So it's probably a fake name. I also, <laughs> I agree. I It's a fake name. Eight years ago, he tried to get tax-exempt status for his group, the Church of Wisdom and Sight. So it's pretty clear that they're dealing with a cult and the other members may have escaped through the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Cragen says that their priority is to find them and ID the victims. He also mm -hmm. tells everyone who was on the scene to meet with a psychiatrist that the department will be providing. Mm -hmm. It's non-negotiable. Nobody mm -hmm. is exempt. Stabler. Emphasis Stabler. He's <laughs> like eyeballing Stabler because he's on the other side of the room crossing his meaty arms because he knows he's about to get some pushback. Yeah. Sure as fucking shit. Captain, can't we do this later? <laughs> I don't want to meet with somebody. I don't want to talk about my feelings. Cragen just tells him that he's going to do it or he's off the case. Mm. Huang, our favorite FBI psychiatrist, offers to talk to him and the other detectives who mm -hmm. we know and love. And then his face looked like he immediately regretted offering because Stabler's like, <laughs> yeah, I was mad at Stabler the way he talked to Huang a little bit later. Ooh, mm -hmm. I was like, uh, uh, no, you don't. Mm -mm. Get out of his face. You do not. Let's take the ego down just a notch. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all coming from fear and... Dad stuff. I want to say ego, but like it goes deep into that, that little fear-shaped hole in his body. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> so Huang talks to Stabes first. He's doing his gentle questions thing and Stabler's doing his tough guy thing. Oh, yeah. Mm. There, there are a bunch of dead bodies. You know, what are you going to do? It was terrible. They're all terrible. Like, what the fuck? We're sitting here going, dude, Huang has all kinds of other shit he could be doing right now. But he's like, I'm going to talk to you and help you through this because I fucking know you, dude. Mm -hmm. So he asks Stabes, then you think this is a big waste of your time. So they're doing that thing where they're jumping from conversation to conversation so when he asks staves you think this is a big waste of your time we cut to huang talking to munch who is responding to that question and he sarcastically mm. says oh no we should sit around all day talking about our feelings munch thinks there's no point in talking about anything because people are going to continue to be repulsive so why try to wrap your brain around it it's just people are going to keep being gross we're not right. going to solve anything. But Huang calls him out noticing a pattern in him. Yeah, that's the worst part for you, that you still find shit repulsive and you can still be sickened no matter how much of this terrible shit you see. Mm -hmm. Cut to Huang with Benny. And she's actually taking in what Huang is saying. You can really see she's letting herself feel it mm -hmm. and even acknowledges in this moment that her feelings are normal. Mm -hmm. Cut to Huang's one-on-one -on -one with Toots, who is also open to being vulnerable here. Huang asks him what he did after he went home that night. And Toots said he had dinner and he called his kid. He doesn't talk to him much, but he wanted to say hi. Yeah. They get into it a little bit deeper. And Toots feels like knowing that all of this shit is real means nobody's safe. And mm -hmm. Huang asks him if he feels helpless. Back to Stabler answering that question. And he shockingly mentions thinking of his children when it comes to cases. But <laughs> that's only because, duh, I have kids. We deal with crimes dealing with kids. That's why I think about my kids. Otherwise, I would never fucking think about my kids. I forget <laughs> that I even have kids. Stabler is really fucking fighting letting any feelings happen here. Yeah. He finally admits that he thought about his kids at this particular scene because one of the little kids was wearing a teddy bear shirt that his daughter has. Mm. Then he says, whatever, it's done. You move on. He is 
burying it. Back to Benny, who tells Huang that she's afraid she won't be able to handle this case. He reassures her that this is exactly how you handle something traumatic. Her mm -hmm. willingness to talk about how it's affected her is what's going to help her through it. Mm -hmm. And she starts crying and says she's afraid that talking about it isn't working. Mm. So there's like a range of responses from each of the detectives. Yeah. And basically Craig and it, it just wants to figure out who should be on the case or not after everything that they saw, you know? Right. Who's handling it appropriately or who's yeah. handling it in a way that's not going to make them fucking crack, you know? Yeah. It's funny because... Just in the other episode where that dad shoots the kid, Stabler's like, oh, this guy is a fucking ticking time bomb. This guy's going to fucking snap. Stabler, you are that guy right now. You're the guy all, like, every day. But yeah, but particularly this. This is like a prime example. So like later when he and Benson are talking about like, oh, I'm going to be off the case or what, what, we'll get there. But I was immediately yeah. like, uh, Craig and's gonna send Stabler home. <laughs> yeah. So the squad goes over the case details. Stapes tells Munch that CSU was able to collect names from paycheck stubs and mail at the house. They are all women, but the names and social security numbers are all fake. Munch thinks that one of the women has to come forward since there are children in the morgue that are unclaimed. Like one of these women have to do something. Well, they're gonna want to know if their kids are okay. Yeah. So Benson comes in. She's got Abraham's real name. It's Eugene Hoff. They got prints from the Of course, it's Eugene. Eugene Hoff. More like Eugene Scoff. <laughs> Shut up. That one's not good. I, I, I blacked out your entire existence while you said that. <sighs> so I could continue loving you. <laughs> so we find out his real name. So that's what we're calling him for the rest of the episode. They got prints from the house and found a match in the system. He was arrested four times in the 80s for check fraud, counterfeiting, identity theft, and other various frauds. Stabler thinks he's a con man, but if the cult is a scam, why did he kill only the kids and where are the fucking parents? Toots comes over and tells him that he's taken leave. Nobody forced him. He's taken it himself. Munch is like, what? Toots says, sometimes you just got to take a step back. And then Munch is like, oh, I'll walk you out, buddy. Good for him. I know. Stabler tells Benson that they should start looking into things at the Pentecostal church Hoff used to work at. And then Benson's like, oh my God, they're going to fucking send me home. I know it. Stabler says, no, they won't. They're not going to fucking do that. But Benson thinks that she was too emotional and couldn't hold it together. But you were supposed to be emotional because it was an emotional thing. You were just in a traumatic situation and you had an emotional yeah. response when you were asked to talk about it and relive how it made you feel. So Because you're human and that's okay. You're a human being. You're not a robot. <laughs> <laughs> robot singing. <laughs> I will always love you. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Craig calls Stabler into his office. Uh-oh, Huang is in there waiting. Craig lets him know that he's being referred to ongoing therapy services. Stabler immediately blames Huang, of course, and kind of gets in his face and sarcastically says, What did you want me to do, cry? Is that it? <sighs> I'm like, back off. Ba like, literally back, take a step back. You're too close mm -hmm. to his face. Wong tells him that if he won't take care of himself, that he has to allow them to help him. Mm -hmm. Stabler yells in Wong's face to stay out of his fucking head and let him do his job. How dare you fucking speak to Wong like that? Oh. Let him do his job. How about that, you fucking little bitch? He's like, I have been being John Malkovich trained, okay? Like, I have all access to what's in your fucking head, whether you like it or not. 
FBI, baby. Yeah. Craig rightfully yells at Stabler and says he's out on sick leave until Psych tells him he can return. It's, and then he's like, bro, it's a week at most. And Stabler's pissed and goes to leave. And then Craig says, oh, and uh, you don't need to be carrying a gun around right now. Stabler turns around, drops his gun on Craigan's desk, fucking eyeballs Wong, and leaves back to the squad room. He gets his jacket without saying anything to Benson, and Benson's assigned to be Munch's partner. Dude, you have a week with your fucking kids. Why are you so pissed? And it's paid. It's fucking paid. Paid leave. And like, I don't know, maybe look inward for 30 seconds and be like, maybe. Yeah. But also somebody who's not dealing with their shit, who's asked to go be quiet with their shit. That's really scary. Totally. And the way that Stabler and, you know, society with our men in general handles fear and huge emotions is with anger. Right. Not to excuse how he talked to Huang or anything, but. It's not an excuse explanation. That's it. Right. It's just like, honey, you are basic. You are (sighs) basic. Yeah. So Benson and Munch continue on with the case. A little bit later, Benson is trying to call Stabler, but he won't answer. Munch asks her about Melanie. Okay, so Melanie is having surgery to prevent premature labor. They can't talk to her for a few hours. Mm. They go to that Pentecostal church that Hoff used to work at. Benson thinks it's just another con. Cut to the church. This head pastor guy says Hoff only worked at the church for a short time before he was made a minister. Munch mentions that he must have been pretty impressed with Hoff if he gave him a job so quick. This guy admits to being fooled. The more popular Hoff got, his group often had over like 100 members, the weirder Mm -hmm. he became. He preached that the serpent was actually Christ and... Ten families left the parish when Hoff was fired. Benson shows the guy a photo of Melanie, but he doesn't recognize her. He does say that one family left Hoff's church after a few years. They maybe have more info? Go talk to them. Yeah, and Benny's like, fucking, oh, the serpent is Christ. Snake tattoo. Cool. Cool guy. Over in Queens, Benny and Munch go to talk to Carl and Simone Buckman, the people who left the church. Mm Mm-hmm. They're at their apartment. Simone says that Hoff was magnetic. Carl adds that Hoff started changing and became paranoid and told them that they would be punished for their beliefs and that the government was going to come after them. Mm -hmm. They needed to be prepared to defend themselves. They collected weapons and food and went to the gun range a bunch. Hoff separated the married couples because they couldn't be, quote, soldiers of God if they were slaves of the flesh. The men slept on one floor and the women slept on the same floor as Hoff. Oh, yeah. What a surprise. I know, right? Weird. That's so... So not like anything that's ever happened before. This is just describing David Koresh. Yeah. They bring up Koresh a bunch in this, so Mm -hmm. there was no avoiding talking about him for the chaser, but... yeah. Eventually, the men were driven away. Mm-hmm. Benny then asks about the children, and the Buckmans both turn around to tell their young daughter, who's standing behind them working on an art project in this room where they're talking about a crazy cult leader, could you leave the room? And she's like, you should have asked me to leave the room 20 minutes ago, but sure. Mm-hmm. She does. Carl tells them that Hoff always talked about the purity and goodness of children, but he only paid attention to the girls. Mm. Then he caught Hoff trying to sexually assault their daughter when she was 
four. And that's the night they left. Mm -hmm. They found him like in her room without his pants on or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The couple continues talking to the detectives and they're trying to make sense of why they were in this thing to begin with, with Hoff. Yeah. When they joined, he wasn't this far gone. He used to be very convincing, charismatic. This is one of those things where you're slowly indoctrinated or there's like a pull-in strategy. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, what am I in? Yeah. I mean, because the lady even said, she's like, I look back now. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, that's how it always is. You know, you look back and you're like, what? It slowly morphs into staying out of fear and Mm self-preservation. And you don't even realize that's happening. Yeah. And it's so funny because when you see people, they're like, I would never allow that. I could never. How could they? And you're like, fuck off. It happens. And and these people aren't bad. They're not stupid. They're Exactly. Yeah. It can happen to Mm -hmm. the the, the most intelligent person in the whole fucking world. It's not about that. Right. I'll see shit like online comments, you know, people will be like, well, I would never if I if that happened to me, I would. Yeah. It, you know, with things with like rape and stuff, too. They're like, I would I would fight. And you're like, sometimes being fucking still is survive. You're surviving whatever you however you react yeah. is however you fucking react. And none of it's wrong. Mm hmm. Like, fuck off. And then some of this cult shit, it's just like, there's so many layers to how people respond Mm -hmm. to like, oh my God, isn't this obvious to you that this is what's happening? And it's like, "Mm, there's been a lot of wires crossed in my brain because I'm a human and somebody's manipulating that. And that's not fucking hard to do. Right. Given access. Anyway. So these people are like, he wasn't like this when we started following him and they were fortunate enough to get snapped out of it when the unfortunate event of them finding him with their four-year-old happened. Yeah. So Carl's like, check it out. He hands over a VHS tape. That was conveniently at the top of a drawer within arm's length away. (laughs) He pulled out of his front shirt pocket. It was... Made extra large just so he could carry this VHS tape. I was thinking more of like a Mary Poppins type pocket where he's like, hold on, let me get my umbrella out. (laughs) (laughs) So this tape is of Hoff speaking to his group. Back at the precinct, the crew watches the video. He's going on about the soldiers of Satan coming to murder them and their kids, that they have to make sacrifices and be ready for when that day comes. And Cragen sarcastically says, guess that makes us soldiers of Satan. This guy isn't too paranoid. And we're like, funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Huang says that Hoff made his followers paranoid to create solidarity and loyalty. If they bond over being persecuted, they will cling even more. This reminds me so much of like, I'll be like, the Christians are probably one of the most persecuted. I'm like, "Mm, not in this country, hun. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's the need and desire to be a victim, even though you're the majority, you know? I mean, it's that black and white David and Goliath. Us or them type of a fucking... Yeah, yeah. And what we're fighting for is just and right. We have the ultimate authority in God. Mm -hmm. This is just describing what happened in Waco. But uh, anyway, so during this moment this back and forth the phone rings benny answers while she's on the phone in the background making all kinds of faces huang talks about how many cult leaders sexually assault children of their followers mm-hmm. david koresh had a 10 year old bride who was that guy with the kool-aid he had a 10 year old bride too um 12 year old jim jones yeah i think so didn't he maybe i don't remember if there was shit with kids with well, him look at the fucking mormon Polygamy groups, like, you know, they have child brides. Oh, yeah. Fucking Warren Jeffs and shit. Yeah. That shit's fucked up. That fucking stay sweet shit. Keep sweet. Keep sweet. Yeah. The fucking FLDS. Yeah. But again, those aren't, those are sex. Sex. Right. 
S-E-C-T-S, yeah. that don't speak for the majority of these religions. Yeah. It's the extremists that make people go, holy shit. Right. Also, Huang brings up the leader of the Nawabian cult who was convicted on 14 counts of child molestation. So this is not a unique situation for a cult leader to find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Over to Benny's phone call, she jumps into their conversation and tells Cragen that the woman on the phone will only speak to the person who is in charge. She wants to know if there's a victim matching the description of a nine-year-old boy with brown hair and a scar on his left leg. Benson puts her on hold and Cragen goes to his office to take it. Huang gets to work on getting the call traced while Cragen kind of stalls in talking to her. Benson starts recording the call with her talk boy in her pocket. Talk boy. Uh, voice recorder or whatever. Yeah, whatever talk it was. Boy. It was some little voice recorder. Yeah. <laughs> it's the holiday season. Is talk boy a thing? It was a thing after Home Alone 2. I remember. Remember? No, you always do this with Home Alone. You're like, anyway, remember? this guy looks like Uncle Frank. <laughs> anyway, so she's got a fucking, oh my God. Benson has a fucking recorder thing. She's recording the call. Craigan's on the phone. Huang's trying to trace it. Craigan asks the woman her name and she says she can't tell him. She just wants to know about the boy. Craigan tells her that they can arrange for her to see the bodies so she can identify the boy that she's talking about. And she asks him again to tell her. Craigan assures her that she's not in trouble, but then she hangs up. Mm. Huang says the call came from the payphone at St. Catherine's Hospital, the same hospital where Melanie is. So Benson mm -hmm. thinks the caller could have been Melanie's mom. Mm-hmm. Cut to the hospital. We're in Melanie's room. Melanie refuses to say anything to Benson. Benson asks if Samuel was her little brother. Did the mom say the name Samuel? How do I know that Sam Samuel was the boy who answered the door? Yeah, but how do they know? How do they figure that out? Did the mom say something? I don't know. Because he had brown hair and... I remember the boy. I just don't remember how they knew his name. When Abraham came to the door, he was like, go back in, Samuel, or something like that. He called him Samuel. Okay, yeah. Benson asks if Samuel was her little brother. Again, Melanie won't respond. So Benson's getting kind of like, uh, she's like, dude, Hoff is a liar and killed your little brother and all your friends. And he's going to try to kill your mom. She begs Melanie to tell her where her mom is so she can protect her. Mm. Melanie's crying. She's just such a good little like actor crying. Like it's all. She, yeah, she was good. Yeah. And says that her mom told her that Hoff was taking them to a safe place. Benson finds out that a bunch of the members of the cult are hiding at an army surplus store, so the gang busts in. The owner of the store tries to stop them from coming in, like spouting civil rights violations, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He's yelling that the cult has the right to believe in whatever they want. That's not what they're fucking here for, dude. A bunch of kids are dead. You fucking... Yeah. My favorite part of this is a cop, like a blue uniform cop, who's obviously trained in de-escalation, takes this guy by the shoulders and goes, relax. He's fucking... <laughs> <laughs> relax he's like okay yeah okay right, yeah you're right this guy's good got it <laughs> so, nothing calms me down more than somebody <laughs> shaking the shit out of me telling me to relax yeah i can stop taking my anxiety medication now i just gotta remember what that guy said just actually relax. when i book a day at a spa that's the treatment i go in for some people like a good massage some people like a fucking scrub and soak i want somebody to jostle my body and yell in my face <laughs> Yep, you're just standing in a white robe and there's some scary German lady that just yells, relax. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> totally refreshed. Benson goes into a room that has a curtain covering the door and finds a group of women sitting on the floor fucking holding hands. When people invite me like a girl's weekend, this is what I assume <laughs> that it is. <laughs> 
It's not. It's not. I know. It's more like fucking chugging booze and sticking your legs in the air and rolling on the floor. You love that <laughs> shit. I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> she asks which one of them is Melanie's mom and asks where the fuck Hoff is. One woman starts fucking screaming and begins to accuse Benson of having, quote, our husband, end quote, in one of their torture rooms and that they're murderers. An officer just grabs her and starts carrying her off. And she's mm-hmm. screaming, you're a slave to the devil. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. One officer locates a trunk of guns and calling it their, quote, own little Waco. Back to the precinct. Munch is sounding frustrated, trying to interview one of the women. She's just staring forward. She refuses to speak with him. Same goes for all the other women. Nobody's going to talk. We pan over to Benny talking to Huang. She tells him nobody's got ID. Nobody's telling us shit. And they're all married to fucking Hoff. Huang doesn't think the women know where Hoff is. And that's why they're so scared. Mm, Yep. The women believe that the police killed the children, not Hoff. Benson is convinced that one of the women already, quote, strayed from the flock by calling SVU. They see that as a crack that they can maybe Mm. get into. Huang tells her that whoever that woman is, she won't say anything in front of the other women. Huang suggests they need to interview them alone and compare voices to the recorded call. Mm. Munch comes over and says they should have Melanie identify her mom from the mugshots. He thinks she'll be willing since she's been cooperating. Maybe they can save themselves some time, which Mm -hmm. makes a lot more sense where it's like, why don't we just ask this kid first? And try to narrow it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Munch is so good at that. He's like, hey, I narrowed everything down. I did a fucking March Madness bracket and I've got it Mm -hmm. all figured out. So I'm here to save us tons of time like that's one of his things yeah. that i've noticed yeah. is munch is the one to be on top of They'll that be like, shit. oh man we got to get all the bank reports and he's like I already did it and he's like remember i live in the walls i have a tiny typewriter i fucking work on this shit all day every day i have a system of tunnels and tubes and <laughs> tubes. <laughs> tubes toilet paper rolls stuck together because <laughs> i won't buy a 12 year old <sighs> I'll eat my own babies. You got to separate me from my wife. Ew. <laughs> Munch is like, I got this figured out. Let's go ask Melanie first before we do a bunch of legwork. This dude materializes behind them, hands Benny a note and scoots off. It's a message from Corner Warner. Munch is going to go check out what she needs in the morgue. And Benny is going to go to the hospital to talk to Melanie. In the office of the medical examiner, Corner Warner tells Munch there's nothing she'd like better than helping them, quote, put a needle in this dude's arm. But Hoff didn't kill those kids. What? Mm. The oldest victim was 20 and her injury was self-inflicted. Her hand is covered in gunshot residue and her prints were the only one on the gun. Oh, man. He like got some fucking 20 year old to kill all those kids. Yeah. Munch is annoyed because, duh, Hoff orchestrated all of it, even if he didn't pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. These followers were under his complete control. Like like those women from, uh, what's that guy's name with the fucking... Charles Manson. Yeah. He yeah. brings up Manson and, and, and says, well, fucking Manson got put in prison, even though he wasn't at the scene of the... That's the, right, I forgot, yeah. Um, with the LaBianca Tate murders. And Corner Warner's like, I'm just hitting you with the forensics, but check out this DNA shit that I've got. There's a girl that's around 16 and a boy that's around two. 
the girl is the boy's mom. Mm. All of the victims have the same father except for the shooter. So Munch probably already assumed this, but realized, oh, Hoff is an incestuous pedophile. The only victim that can testify against him now is Melanie. Mm. In the hospital where Benny went, she gets to Melanie's room and Melanie's not in there. Benny storms the nurse's station to find out where Melanie is. This poor nurse who fucking just slipped into her dance codes is running around to check and see if Melanie was moved somewhere. She's like, I'm sorry, I just got here. I just started my shift. I have no idea yeah. what you're talking about. Benson sees Melanie's hospital roommate in the hall and she tells Benson that Melanie's dad took her home. I wonder who that is. In the precinct, Benson goes behind the glass. Huang is watching Craig and interview one of the women. Benson tells him that security cameras saw Melanie walking out of the hospital with Hoff and she didn't look forced. And Huang says she wasn't. The cult is all she knows. She probably wanted to go with him. She didn't probably. She did want to go with him. She's like, thank God. Somebody I know is here. My husband. Ugh. The woman being interviewed by Cragen is named Sarah. She won't admit to anything, but her voice sounds just like the one from the call. This is intense, by the way. Benson mm-hmm. goes into the interview room. The woman won't look at her and won't meet Cragen's eyes. There was something found in her pocket that had numbers on it, but she won't tell them what it means. Benson asks if Sarah was the name of Abraham's wife in the Bible. The woman won't answer. Benson's like, oh, Sarah, the one who, quote, whored out her servant so that Abraham could have a child. She asked if that's why Sarah let Hoff rape her 12 and a half year old daughter. She didn't say rape, but I did. Because I'm like, yeah. that's what it was you know oh, yeah benson tells sarah that her abraham is different because he likes to have sex with his own daughter Ugh. the mom says that melanie isn't hoff's daughter melanie's dad abandoned them when melanie was a baby and hoff took care of them benson tells sarah that hoff raped her daughter sarah tells benson that she doesn't expect her to understand when you have to say that to somebody, it means that you're wrong, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't expect you to get it. I'm like, um, it's because it's you like it's because it's wrong. You're wrong. Right. Benson tells her that she knows Sarah doesn't think this is right because she's the one that took Melanie to the hospital and she's the one that made the phone call to see if Hoff had killed her son. Benson then shows a photo of her dead kid and the other children interface sarah gets up and moves away benson's just getting more heated just up just rampant yeah kind of foaming at the mouth benson makes her turn around and pushes her up against the wall and gets in her fucking face those other women are brainwashed but you're not you know exactly what he is sarah yells that's not true benson yells that she knew and let the kids die because she sat there and watched it all happen sarah's like it was God's will. Can you fucking believe it? It was God's oh. will. Mm-mm. That's a major coping moment for this woman. Yep. Benson screams, no, Sarah, it was your will. You can blame God. You can blame Abraham. We all know the truth. You did this. You sat there and watched as a man raped one of your own children and then murdered the other one. You might as well kill them yourself. And she's screaming. Like, I took a picture of her she- like... like, Oh, yes. You might as well have killed him yourself. When she said that, my fucking i am so gay right now my nips are named olivia and benson and they are (laughs) razor fucking sharp after this scene just yeah dude p.s we are fresh off that red carpet where her titties were insane and she had that necklace on and looked like the most confident amazing woman ever oh okay yeah so benson is straight up in her face screaming intense craig and has been kind of watching this and being like, whoa. (laughs) Cragen stands up and says, Olivia. He actually goes, Elliot, I mean, Olivia, stop it. (laughs) Right, yeah. He's like, I made the right, did I make the right choice? Benson quits yelling, but stays in Sarah's face and tells her that Hoff has Melanie and Sarah's unborn grandchild. This fucking woman says, it's a test. 
I won't be tempted. And she's crying. She fucking somewhere. She might know or not. I don't know. How do you argue with that? Like, how do you? You can't. You can't. That's what can negate any kind of logic. Right. You know, anything that's like, see this thing in front of you. That's like the sky is blue and the grass is green. And they're like, no, this is a test. And that's what fucks with their brain so much. And that's the whole solidarity thing where it's like, no, I'm strong for what this thing is and fucking, yeah yeah this is conviction this is integrity yeah with with humans being like pack animals and there's hierarchies in every single group whether it be at your house or your friendship group it mm-hmm. seems extremely easy for somebody to be caught up in something like this a hundred percent don't care how strong you think you are right you know? and that's the thing is like people you know i like to be like i'm independent fucking think for myself whatever ah, if i zoomed out i have a lot of thoughts based on what's around me you know mm-hmm. um and it's really hard to look past that shit yeah in the precinct squad's going over all the shit benson comes in forensics found that the numbers sarah had in her pocket were all account numbers all from the same bank they were all closed yesterday. Somebody walked away with around 600K. Benson's like, mm. fucking hoff. The camera is like on her and she's at her desk staring off into nothing while everybody's saying all this stuff. And then the bank thinks she's like, she's like, I got to get this fucking guy. Mm. Cragen thinks Sarah closed the accounts and gave the money to old Abe before SVU detained the women. Munch says, you don't have that kind of money by passing the hat. <laughs> Turns out most of the deposits in the account were payroll checks from major corporations, which are easy to counterfeit because it takes the big companies longer to catch on. And then I was like, can I do that? I don't know. I'll think about it later. (laughs) (laughs) Cragen says Hoff is back to his scamming roots and wonders if it's a coincidence that all the accounts are from one bank. Benson thinks that Hoff has an inside guy working at the bank. Cut to New York Savings Bank. New York. (laughs) Munch and Benson go to speak with the employee that closed all the accounts for Sarah. He's on the phone talking about taking a trip to Tampa or something. Munch and Benson just go up to his desk and hang up the phone. This dude. Yeah. He played Haley Joel Osment's teacher in The Sixth Sense. No way. Stuttering Stanley. Stuttering Stanley. Oh, that's right. Remember? And he's like, shut up, you freak remember yeah, yeah. that's him that's whoa him. i know he's like uh who the hell do you think you are motherfucking svu bitch that's who we are okay <laughs> you're lucky the other dude that we work with isn't here he would have fucking jumped over the desk and punched you in the mouth <laughs> okay munch tells him they know exactly what he's been doing he's cashing these bogus checks for hoff and cutting himself in benson mm-hmm. tells him his boss is on the phone with the FBI and they cut over to this woman on the phone like looking at him like what the fuck and he goes oh my god (laughs) he says he wants a lawyer and Benson leans over his desk into his face and says you're gonna need one you're screwed yeah but Munch tells him that if he helps them find Hoff it'll look really good for him this guy plays like such a good little like I'll narc in five seconds like a little like Mm-hmm. This guy says that Hoff will be at the bank that afternoon. There is one account left to close and it has more money than the others combined. Ooh, we're going to have a badly staged stakeout. Can't wait. It's stakeout time, kids. At the bank, SVU and Backup are all waiting Grab for Grab your bib and up. your knife and fork because we're going on a stakeout. <laughs> You're not going to need any A1 sauce for this stakeout. <laughs> Pass the ketchup. We're having to 
send that mid-rare back. We need a well-done stakeout. We need that garlic compound butter disc for this stakeout. <laughs> I'll have the garlic mashed potatoes on this side of my stakeout. Oh, I hate uh, I'll take the grizzle off your stuff. Okay. Never. <laughs> I'm wearing this t-shirt saying that I ate the old 96er at my last stakeout. <laughs> That was a pull. That was a great outdoors. Fucking John Candy. Okay. Uh, Benson's watching in the rear view mirror of her car and sees Hoff coming with a hat on around the corner. The wet hot American summer Paul Rudd double take that she does is so fucking funny. She looks up and she's like, uh, uh. <laughs> so she has Zach Morris's first phone and announces Hoff's description as he walks right past her car. Windows open. bullhorn. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming, guys. Inside the bank, Cragen's in there. Munch is at the teller window with Reggie, fucking Hoff's bank connection. He's being super discreet, though. He's got a playground twisty slide hanging off of his fucking ear. And he tells <laughs> Reg to put the tracker. <laughs> he, t- <laughs> he tells Reg to put the tracker in with the money. Don't fuck it up, okay? Shh, over. Hoff gets behind him in line. Stuttering Stanley is super smooth and says, thank you for baking with us, sir. Don't forget the pile of kindergartners playing on your top secret equipment. (laughs) Super smooth. Munch walks off to talk into his sleeve to Benson. The whole time, Cragen is just standing He might as well have just turned around and faced that, faced (laughs) Hoff and been like, hey guys, he's here. (laughs) And then walked through uh, him to the other side, like in Pootie Tang. <laughs> Reggie tells Hoff that the check bounced. I don't know what to do, buddy. And Hoff immediately knows something's up. Munch into his sleeve is like, fucking Reggie sucks at this. Oh, does he? The Weasley bank teller who you strong-armed into being a key component in your sting operation sucks at it? <laughs> oh, okay. <God>. Yeah. <laughs> That's too bad. Hoff goes to walk away because he's like, fuck this. I'm out. Cragen draws his weapon and tells him to get on the ground. Benson's making her way inside when Hoff puts a knife to his own neck to fucking slit his own throat. And he yells, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. In the Bible, this is what Jesus said as his last words on the cross. It's also a line from a great system of a down song, Chop Suey. Mm. And he's like, yep. father into your hands, I commend my spirit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I didn't jam. put that together till right oh. now. Yeah. So this guy's like, ah, oh, fucking into my ha- your hands. I commend my spirit. Benson tackles him from behind. The knife falls from his hand and he's put under arrest. Benson hard breathes in Hoff's face. Tell me where Melanie is. She went full Dark Knight Batman. Uh, yeah. Hoff only says that she's, quote, safe with our father now. All nations rightly give him praise. Ugh. <sighs> Back at the precinct, Hoff's being interviewed. He's got his neck all bandaged up. I didn't think he nicked it or anything at all. And so at first I thought he was just wearing this fucking dorky turtleneck, but it's a it's a bandage from him throat cutting. He refuses to tell Benson any specifics on where Melanie is. So Benson just straight up asks if she's dead. Hoff says she'll have everlasting life, just skirting around any kind of direct answer. He tells Benny he didn't kill anyone and asks Benny why she's drawn to her job. 
were you raped? He's being so needly and irritating. Yeah, he's like trying to do his whole cult thing, like uh, mm-hmm. get in your head thing. And she doesn't want him to see that he's getting under her skin. And she fucking turns too. She only lets it happen for a moment. But then she demands that he tells her where Melanie is. He continues to tell Benson that the horror of her job will kill her and it's devouring her. Open your eyes. His whisper, creepy cult leader ASMR mouth sounds are telling her all of this shit and she Mm -hmm. completely shifts and says quote you know i just thought you were another con artist seeking out people who were starved for anything that would give them meaning in their life they're easy marks you talk about god and the apocalypse and they give you all of their money but you're much more pathetic than that you actually believe your own hype you conned yourself intense eye contact as she leaves the room and he just stares back at her in steven tyler Yeah, it's true. On the other side of the glass in Cragen's fictional hometown of Winter River, Connecticut, where he tries to get Winona Ryder to become his child bride. But right before they get married, Gina Davis rides in on a sandworm that devours him. (laughs) Novak says that (laughs) Melanie's testimony. (laughs) I also did another from behind the glass because I wasn't sure. Oh, okay. Um, I did it because it was like in the middle of this section for me. And I was like, this is a technical behind the glass for Gabe because... It's not even tech. It's an actual one. Yeah. Yes. Craig is there. They're in so the right place or whatever. I so figured that you would do one, but I was like, in case you didn't... I did oh, one just you, in case. Okay, you okay so I go, Craig and Novak are watching from behind the glass in Craigan's dive bar. There's Jaeger on tap and open mics are on Thursday nights. It's usually just an old regular who plays piano man on the guitar and drinks till close. Karaoke's on Saturday nights and it's a fucking blast. <laughs> what would it be called? Viable? Craig's? Craigan's? It'd be called Craigan's. Probably be called Craigan's. I mean, what yeah. else What else would it be called? So over here to Craigan and fucking Benny, who just walked in from talking to this piece of shit, Novak says that Melanie's testimony was their only shot at an indictment. Without Melanie, Novak can't convert the complaint. Craigan says that as soon as the DNA comes back, they'll have him on statutory rape and incest anyway. A man appears in the doorway. It's Tim Burton. Just kidding. <laughs> It's Hoff's lawyer, Jeffrey Downs. Uh, he spells it with a G. G off. Re. One of those people. Ugh. Yeah. He was in Boiler Room, Requiem for a Dream, the OG Amityville Horror, Summer of Sam. Mm. He's been in a ton of shit. Hmm. He tells them that they don't have the charge that they speak of unless there's a birth certificate. Cragen argues that they don't need the birth certificate if they have Hoff's chromosomes. But attorney Geoff says that his client didn't admit to the woman being his daughter. Benny rightly interrupts and goes, fucking woman? She was 15 when he got her pregnant. Mm-hmm. The lawyer's certain no judge is going to accept that as proof of age because it's not. That was just what Corner Warner estimated her age was. Mm-hmm. So the statutory rape and incest charges are unfounded. Mm. Attorney Geoff goes in to talk to Hoff, and we're still with Craig and Shrunken Head. I was really sticking with the Beetlejuice thing. I did not realize <laughs> you were going to have something there. So. <laughs> So Craigan's like kind of is Beetlejuice in this scenario. Um, mm. Oh my God, his dive bar can be called Craigan, Craigan, Craigans. <laughs> no, the three C's. Mm. <laughs> Novak doesn't like that Downs is right. And Benson reminds her, dude, there's seven victims, but the forensics reflect that he didn't commit the murders. So it's enough for an acquittal. Mm. Craigan brings up, Charles Manson being charged for the murders that were committed in his name. But Novak argues that members of the cult testified that Manson ordered the murders. So that's how they were able to make that stick. Mm. Hoff's followers aren't going to say anything. 
And they know nobody's going to say anything, not even Melanie's mom, who prior to this was their best shot. She's on a hunger strike protesting the police's persecution of her religion. Oh, my God. Nobody's persecuting your religion. They're persecuting seven Mm. children being murdered and rape and incest. Yeah. Melanie, the 12 and a half year old pregnant child, is their only With her second child. Yeah. Mm. Novak says they can keep Hoffman on check fraud, but he'll be out on bail by tomorrow afternoon. Clock's ticking. Cragen says they're going to put a detail on him as soon as he leaves the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Munch walks in to tell them that the account Hoff tried to close had over a million dollars in it and was under the name John Kramer from New Jersey. <laughs> the real John, the real John went missing 10 years prior. He vanished with his wife and daughter, who was two at the time. She should be 12 now. Her name was Melanie. Oh, my God. John's parents reported the family missing, but they've since passed away. Detective Stu McKenzie was listed on the case. So Benny and Munch are going to go talk to him. Mm -hmm. Getting there, you guys. 34 minutes. Benson and Munch are lakeside chatting with Detective Stu McKenzie. I think it's so funny where they're like, hey, can you meet up with us? And they're like, yeah, let's meet in this weird spot overlooking the Hudson or fucking whatever. Yeah. You know, wouldn't they go to a coffee shop or like, are you at the precinct or where? It's always like an abandoned warehouse parking lot. Yeah. It's a, (laughs) I like the visuals, but it's just, do they do that? Do real cops do that? Where they're like, let's meet. I guess I see cops like on the interstate in between. Where their cars are facing each other. Where their cars are. Yeah. Their cars are facing opposite directions so that they're sitting side by side. Maybe that's, I don't know. Who cares? This dude is a classic TV detective, dirt yes. brown suit, bushy mm-hmm. mustache, and a blow-dried wall of hair starting two inches back from the top of his forehead. I've never seen a more cop-looking cop. Yeah. If he has been smoking a cigarette, that would have been... The main oh. dude, I don't remember his name right now, the main dude from Homicide, Life on the Street, or was it NYPD Blue, was fashioned after this dude. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I'm not going to look it up. We're, we're too far in. I can't. I don't care. Yeah. I don't mean, I don't care to look it up. Yeah. I um, care about you. <laughs> he tells them that Sarah's name is actually Cindy. She didn't have any family. Stu and John's parents were suspicious that the disappearance was related to the cult. John, the missing husband, had donated his trust fund to that group. Jesus fucking Christ. Stu goes on to say the cult was totally off grid and there was a letter sent to Kramer's parents demanding the trust fund money in Melanie's account. It has $2 million in it and it can only be accessed when she turns 21 or when she has a baby. Shit. This is why Melanie's being kept alive. She won't serve any purpose once she fucking delivers that kid. Yeah. Kramer's last known activity were charges to a credit card his mom paid for. They were for construction supplies. This could be related to the noise complaint at the New York house from 10 years ago when construction was being done in the middle of the night. Remember, we talked about that on the stoop. Remember earlier Mm -hmm. that was mentioned? Benson says, we fucking check that place top to bottom. Man, there's nothing there. Munch, our favorite rat detective, reminds her that they didn't check the walls. He would know. I fucking squealed when he said that. (laughs) He's like, dude, just find me a little hole in the wall, a little perfect 
Tom and Jerry curved a hole, put me in there. I'm going to find exactly what you're looking for. Are we looking for a dead body? I've already been in those walls, bitch. I've been in every wall in this goddamn city. I've been in every wall in a two block radius. Do you hear me? I got a whole network of munches crawling around here. And they're like, no, we can't hear you. You're really tiny. You're speaking. (laughs) Okay. Now we're back at that house, which they're now calling Church of Wisdom and Sight, whatever. A woman tells Benny and Munch that there were no building permits issued for this place, so they're looking for a room that shouldn't be there. The tiles in the bathroom kind of gave it away for them. They're going to x-ray the walls to see if they can find a body. Benson gets a call. Hoff's surveillance detail lost him at Grand Central Station. He could be fucking anywhere now. Fucking anywhere. That was my nickname in high school. (laughs) (laughs) The lady x-raying the wall calls him over. A body was found. A body was found. That was my nickname in high school. A body was found. It's covered in fucking cat litter. They find a wallet. It's got John Kramer's bank card in it. Holy shit. So, yeah, the cat litter's to mask the smell, which yeah. I'm sorry, it's not masking the smell. But It's okay. not doing it, yeah. Benson visits Sarah slash Cindy in jail. Benson comes in and calls Sarah Cindy, and she fucking seems scared. The lawyer's like, I think you're confused because that she tries to get so fucking sassy, and it's great. Yeah. Get your cases straight. She's like, oh my God, your real name's Cindy. Her name's Sarah. Right, Sarah? <laughs> Sarah? Right? Sarah? She tosses the fucking wallet down. This belonged to your husband. You said abandoned you 10 years ago. Cindy picks it up. Benson then shows her a photo of the remains in the bathroom wall, telling Cindy that John was shot in the back of the fucking head and buried in the bathroom wall in the house they lived in. Cindy's lawyer asks if Benson is accusing Cindy of murder. No, she's accusing her of being stupid and gullible, end quote. That's what she says, not me. Cindy Mm. starts to cry. Benson talks about how Hoff only surrounds himself with women and girls, and she wonders if he didn't like the competition. Benson tells Cindy that Hoff killed John and then asks her, what's it going to take for you to stop defending this guy? Cindy is crying and says that Hoff told her that John fell in love with another woman and she believed him. Benson pulls out the wedding ring John had on, and tosses it to her. He was wearing it when he was murdered. Cindy's lawyer asks Benson what she wants. Benson tells them that Hoff was last seen at Grand Central Station and that he's going to wherever he's keeping Melanie and that when Melanie has the baby, he will get the trust fund and then kill Melanie. The lawyer wants to know what Benson is offering. Benson says it's a chance to do something right by Melanie, which is something you've not done for your her entire life. Then the lawyer says that's not enough. Cindy tells Benson that Melanie is being kept at a warehouse up north. And her lawyer's like, why did you don't? Okay. Okay, so now we're in the warehouse. SVU and fucking officers roll up and they fucking bust in. They see Melanie through a window and she's in a room sleeping. Benson and a fucking cop get into the door. Benson tells Melanie she's going to take her someplace safe. Then they fucking see Hoff coming closer to the door with a grocery bag. He doesn't see him. Hoff comes in to the room and they draw weapons on him. He's being arrested and tells Melanie that the cops are going to take her away and kill her baby. Benson tells him it's fucking over and he can't control Melanie anymore. You hear gunshots. Melanie fucking shoots the other officer in the leg. Hoff tells mm-hmm. him to back off or Melanie will shoot them both. Benson is like, dude, it's cool, Melanie. Everything's fine. I know you didn't mean to. Hoff tells Melanie to tell Benson to shut up and she does. She's controlled. She's yeah. crying so hard. And Hoff's like, what are you going to do? Shoot a pregnant girl? 
Benson turns the gun on him and says, you son of a bitch. Hoff tells Melanie to tell Benson she'll kill her. And Melanie does. She's like, I'll kill you. She doesn't want to. I mean, oh, my God. She's going to do whatever this guy says. Well, of course, because she thinks that these cops are like devil people coming to like kill her baby. Right. Benson radios for the other cops outside to stay back and tries to convince Melanie to let the officer that was shot go. Hoff's like, no, Melanie. Benson says she will stay right with Melanie. I'm not going anywhere. I promise I'm going to be here. But she keeps her fucking gun on Hoff. Benson tells the other cop to leave. Get out of here, Z. And he's like, I'm not going to leave you here with these fucking people. And she's like, get out of here. And so he starts scooting off. (laughs) I know. Scooting off. He was, though. He was like scooting. I pictured like a dog with an itchy butthole. (laughs) (laughs) The scene's intense. Hoff keeps talking to Melanie saying, look, everything I predicted is true. Like, do you believe me now? Look at this. The cops Mm. are here. They're trying to kill me. See, I'm a fucking right. Benson tells her that he's lying. Benson tells Melanie that her mom told her where she is and she wants Melanie to be protected. Hoff killed her father for his money and that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about you, you know, and Mm. she's just like so confused. She's fucking bawling and says that Benson is a liar because Hoff gave her a baby Mm. and then fucking Hoff is just spouting cult stuff. Benson tells Melanie that she's sorry and knows that it's hard to hear, but Hoff hurt her and made her do things she didn't want to. And he knew it was wrong. Hoff is trying to get Melanie to shoot Benson. He's like, fucking shoot her. Shoot the J. Shoot her. (laughs) (laughs) He's telling Melanie, he's like, I love you. I know you. I've cared for you since you were a kid your whole life. And you have to decide who's telling the truth. And the liar must be punished. Benson's gun is shaking because she just wants to blow this fucking loser's brains all over the wall. Mm. He's inching closer to Melanie. And Benson says, she says this so fucking hard. You do not take another step. And he says, or what? You'll shoot me? You'll kill me? Do you see the evil, Melanie? Shoot her. All these men have come here to kill me. Why? Because they know. They know I'm greater than man. I'm greater than God. And they're afraid of what I can do. Melanie pulls the trigger, fucking shoots Hoff. Oh. Oh. Benson comes over and comforts her, fucking grabs the gun and hugs her. She's crying so hard. Oh, Melanie. I fucking. <laughs> Melanie. You, sa- <laughs> you did this to yourself. You have your you telling us this is more intense than the scene itself. Really? Oh, my God. OK, so I'm doing good. OK, good. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Melanie says the sh- she shot him because he said he was greater than God. But nobody. is. You know? That's the end of the episode. Fucking Toyota, dude. Toyota. The cult of personality. Okay. Dude, I could talk about cults fucking all day. And this episode, there are multiple areas that this is pulled from. And I struggled not to go down a different path that was not as obvious in the episode. But we've got to do fucking David Koresh. David Koresh and the Waco Massacre. I feel like this is one that everybody knows a ton about because the zeitgeist is so saturated with pieces on it. But I'm hoping that maybe something or some information will be new for people here. This will be, you know. Yeah. I can't not do super popular shit because people have heard about it. I don't know. I mean, I'm excited because I don't I know about Waco, but I didn't like I don't deep dive into that kind of shit. Cult stuff. I deep dive more into like. I guess I don't really know if I deep dive into anything because every time you tell me something, I'm like, I don't know that about fucking BTK, you know, or Ted Bundy. Yeah. So I don't know. And I watched the series, but I don't, I forgot about it. So I don't really know a whole lot except for John Leguizamo was in the series. Mm. So, all right. So let's, let's do it. 
Vernon Wayne Howell was born on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. I'm going to call him David Koresh from the jump just to save some confusion. He didn't legally change his name until 1990 when he took over the Branch Davidians. Fun fact, on that legal paperwork, he cited the name change as being for, quote, publicity and business purposes. Okay. So religious prophet slash messiah or power hungry con man. Mm. Anyway, baby Koresh, 1959. His mom was 14 year old Bonnie Sue Clark. His dad, 20 year old Bobby Wayne Howell. He left Bonnie before Koresh was born and didn't even meet him until Koresh was 17. He kind of followed in the footsteps of his dad because his 20 year old dad, who had gotten his 14 year old mom pregnant, met another young teenage girl and fucking took off. Something about the apple falling from the tree and whatever, right? Mm. When Koresh was four, Bonnie left her son with her mother. Erlene and took off with her boyfriend. She came back for him three years later with a husband and a new brother for her seven-year-old son. Koresh struggled in school due to dyslexia and would end up dropping out of high school his junior year. When he was 19, he got a 15-year-old girl pregnant. Koresh then claimed to have been born again and joined his mother's Seventh-day Adventist church. The pastor of the church had a 12-year-old daughter. Koresh legit went to the pastor and was like, dude, God told me to marry your daughter. And the pastor was like, oh, fuck off. Yeah. He was excommunicated from the church. I thought you were going to be like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Because these are just straight, regular Seventh-day Adventist people. So I, I'm going to give you a little history on all of this because I think it's interesting. And it, it it leads us to the site where all of this happened. Okay. And I find it super fucking interesting. Like old theology shit, everything. I find it really interesting. So at the base where he started was with the Seventh-day Adventist church. The information that I have right now for this is just from my experience growing up with them. When I was a kid, I lived down the road from a commune of Seventh-day Adventists. They were pretty self-sustaining and called their huge property about a mile from where I lived, the Country Life Ranch. They had their own school and church and farmed a ton. It was very Little House on the Prairie vibes. Uh -huh. Uh, and we were actually really tight with them. And I spent a lot of time there and grew up with all the kids from there. Mm. I have nothing but positive memories of the people I knew. Yeah. They believed mm -hmm. a lot of the same stuff as the Christianity that we were a part of, but some of the stuff set them apart. So in Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, the Bible's to be taken literally. So God literally created the world in six days. And the seventh day is for rest. Like you don't fucking work on Saturday. Also, the Bible says stuff about plants and nuts being you human mean Sunday. Food. No, I mean Saturday. Their Sabbath is Saturday. Oh, okay. Because that was supposed to be the seventh day. Also in the Bible, the Old Testament, there's like a bunch of food rules and there's shit about plants and nuts being human food. So again, the ones that I knew were totally vegan. And I remember I was like, I can't believe you guys don't eat chocolate. It was wild to me. I'm like, it's so good. But they ate carob, which I ended up liking. It was, it's like the substitute for chocolate. And they're also who taught me a lot about vegan cooking. Something I didn't know about them, but read that differs from the Christianity that I grew up in as well. So I didn't know this about them. So I don't know if the people that I knew practiced this or believed in this, but this was something I read about Seventh-day Adventists. They don't believe believe that people go to heaven or hell when they die, they're unconscious until the second coming of Christ happens. Hmm. There's a lot to be known. Anyway, I, I really wanted to emphasize that the people that I knew, it was not culty in any way. This was like the branch off, branch off, branch off is what became the cult. Mm -hmm. And these were really great giving kind people that just happened to believe a different thing. So one minister back to the 
story, not the people I knew. One minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Victor Hotep, felt like uh, Bubba Hotep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what popped in my head when you said that. I was like, great movie. I knew it would, <laughs> yeah. Victor Hotep felt like the church was getting a little too loose with the literal adherence to the commandments. So this was mm-hmm. in the 30s. He believed that they weren't following the letter of God's biblical law as closely as they should and that the church was focusing on God's grace too much. The whole idea that he brought forward was, you know, God's watching. And when Jesus comes back, which is going to be fucking soon, you better be following God's law to a T. So he decided to start a stricter reformed sect that he called the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was followed by other hardcores who also felt like things were getting a little loosey-goosey over at the, uh, the OG church. In 1935, Hotef acquired a settlement in Texas called Mount Carmel. Okay. Mm -hmm. This was the place for Hotep's followers. He wanted it to be a beacon of obedience and prep for the second coming. So when Jesus would show up, he'd be like, holy shit, you guys are totally my favorite. You're doing everything that I wanted. I love you the most or whatever. (laughs) They built an entire community. There was a school, a dairy farm, a bakery. They were totally self-sufficient. Also, this wasn't a small isolated belief circle. I felt like that was worth mentioning because I thought it was. By the 80s, there were more than 200,000 self-identifying Davidian 17 day Adventists around the world. In 1957, they relocated further outside of the Waco city limits because Hotef didn't like how much the city was expanding. It was getting a little too close. So they moved the location. This is the location that we all saw on TV years later. This Mm -hmm. was the Mount Carmel that we were familiar with. After Hotef died, his wife Florence took over. She told everybody that on her husband's deathbed, he predicted the second coming of Christ was April 22nd, 1959 and people fucking flocked to mount carmel they were like we're gonna be here and be super set and be ready people were living in tents and shit so what's april 22nd i wonder what that feeling was it was like packing up the next day to go home (laughs) like people didn't pack up the next day like or just hung out for a while like i wonder the feeling of just packing up when it didn't happen yeah how you process that i was like what you made up in your head was the reason why it didn't happen I read some stuff about the end of that. Um, like, well, it's some actually pe- the BCE calendar, not the B. <laughs> it's like some people were completely disillusioned. Some people saw it as a test. Some people were like, oh, maybe a day doesn't actually mean a day. Maybe because they say God will come back in the twinkle of an eye. What the fuck does that mean for a human? And that could be mm-hmm. two million years for God. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But, you know, April 22nd, 1959 came and went. And it splintered the group into different factions again. So so there's this other dude. His name's Ben Rodden. Eventually, he bought the property back and took over at Mount Carmel and led one of these splintered factions, calling it the Branch. Okay, he proselytized that Christ would return soon after the members reached a level of moral maturity that would please God. Another belief was that within every generation, there was a prophet who is ordained by God. The prophet's job is to continue the teachings from the prophet before him and translate the meaning behind the book of Revelations, the kill bill of Bible parts, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) We're all familiar with the book of Revelations. It's the hardcore end fucking um, Armageddon end of days shit. Seven headed fucking dragons, 17 stars, seven fucking, I don't know, whatever. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, whatever, yeah. Uh, or Beyonce, Beyonce's horse, or whatever. <laughs> the disco ball horse, you mean? Yeah, remember? Nice. All those religions where, where people were being like, "This is, you know, if she's, this is the oh. 
Because she's in the Illuminati. Yeah. yeah. Her eyes blink sideways. <laughs> Eventually, after the death of Rodden, his wife Lois took over the group. So mm -hmm. Lois and Ben had a son, George, who was going to take over, but shit got weird between him and his mom, and they disagreed on some stuff. George ended up having some very serious mental health issues, but that's a totally other rabbit hole that I'm not going to go down. I'll mention him a little bit coming up, but that was a whole other thing. But there was a lot. There's so much legality and fighting over Mount Carmel within these groups, but we're just going to get straight to Lois is in charge of Mount Carmel right now. So... Koresh, he's 21. It's 1981. He moves to Waco after this getting kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist church for wanting to marry the 12-year-old daughter of the pastor. And he's like, I want to follow a strict adherence of the prophet. So he shows up, he goes there. He quickly became Lois's protege and was allegedly sleeping with her. Okay, this piece is just to highlight his manipulation, not to focus on a woman's age. Lois was 67 when Koresh was 21. Mm -hmm. Hot. I believe that he was more than just a fucking pedophile. I'm not saying just a pedophile, but like, because we will see in the future that he's manipulating young teens. I mean, the youngest, I think the youngest quote bride that I read about was nine. But then he's sleeping with a 67 year old woman too. He used any and all of his abilities to gain control. It was all about control. Sort of like that fucking guy. Remember that there was this, the guy that like kidnapped that girl and was like pretending that there were aliens. Remember? Mm. It, like became friends with the mom and dad and manipulated like every, and slept with all of them. Oh yeah. What was that called? I forgot his um, name. Gone in, uh, something in, gone in plain sight. Something in Something plain like sight. That, yeah. Disappeared. Yeah. He was like, fr he took her and then they still let her like be with him. Oh God. Fucking wild. And then he was like manipulating the mom and the dad. It was yeah. fucking wild. Abducted in plain sight. So Lois has got early twenties Koresh. She's leading the group. She dies. And her son, George, finds out that one, Koresh was fucking his mom. And two, Koresh is set to take over as leader of the Branch Davidians. Okay. Yeah. So the two of them are going head to head now for ownership of this place, Mount Carmel, which is set up a lot like the ranch that I grew up with. Multiple single family homes, a church building, a barn. You know, it's yeah. um, a community more than anything. George and Koresh's battle got so intense that apparently George even exhumed the body of a deceased Davidian, Anna Hughes, and challenged Koresh. He told him, whichever one of us can raise her soul from the dead will be the leader. Koresh told the cops because he was like, um, no. But the cops were like, oh, my God, what you No, we don't believe you. And we're not going to take your word for it. And we're not going to investigate it. So George was at the Mount Carmel property at this time. And fucking Koresh had this other place down the road. So Koresh and seven of his followers snuck onto the Mount Carmel property to get photos of Anna Hughes' exhumed casket, but mm -hmm. were discovered by George and there was a full-blown fucking shootout. Koresh and his guys were arrested on attempted murder charges, which were eventually dropped. Holy shit. Separately, George Rodden was set to serve six months for contempt of court in a totally different situation where he was threatening court officials and shit, which turned out to be perfect timing for Vernon Howell to rename himself David Koresh and take over at Mount Carmel. It's 1988. He mm. legally changed it in 1990, but it's 1988. He's like, I'm David Koresh, fucking King David. So it's 1988. The followers take down all of the single family homes and with those materials built one giant 43,000 square foot facility. 
They didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, most of the facility had no electricity and everything was run on generators. So if there was electricity anywhere, it was run on generators. So they had these huge diesel fuel tanks to fuel the generators. But for the most part, they used kerosene lamps. And I mean, Koresh had an AC unit in his bedroom, but, you know, yeah. profit. <laughs> Right. There's a lot going on over there, too. So they build this giant compound. Over the next few years, they were consistently on Waco PD's radar. They seemed to be building an underground bunker connected to the building by a school bus that they had buried. So they're using the school bus as a tunnel to whatever this other thing is underground. In 1992, a defector reported that Koresh preached and carried out the discipline of children as young as six months old. Mm. They would be publicly spanked by a wooden spoon that they called the helper. I mean, CPS was heavily involved at this point and it's a lot to get kids out of a situation mm -hmm. especially when you've got these followers that are like mm -mm, nope 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 um. former followers had also reported that koresh was having sex with slash raping underage girls he claimed god had told him to take on multiple wives in 1986 and in addition to his legal wife rachel he started taking on quote spiritual wives which included several 12 and 13 year old girls Oh, God, I can't. Ugh. I know. By 1989, he announced that all of the women living at Mount Carmel were his wives. Anyone that was married had their marriages annulled, and the other men living on the compound were instructed to be abstinent. Also, remember, because of their belief in a final battle with the opening of the seven seals and the second coming of Christ and the end times and shit, these people were fucking preppers. They were hoarding guns and ammo, military style. OK, mm -hmm. authorities believe that not only was Koresh stockpiling weapons, but was also converting semi-automatic weapons to be fully automatic, which is illegal. OK, like you can fucking have a collection of legally obtained fucking militia style bullshit weapons in the U.S. Yeah, but they were getting him on something that he couldn't do. This is when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms got involved. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where our shit starts. On the morning of February 28, 1993, 76 agents from the ATF were set to raid the compound near Waco, Texas. Their plan was to bust in, find the stockpile of weapons, and arrest Koresh. But this isn't what happened. The group had found out about the ATF's plan and were armed and ready when they arrived. So upon their arrival starts a full-on firefight. Two hours this went on, back and forth. Four agents were killed, 15 were wounded. They didn't know yet inside what was going on. A few hours after the shootout, the FBI showed up with their hostage rescue team. They weren't sure how many people were in the building, but they knew there was a shit ton of kids. So mm -hmm. they surrounded the compound with tanks and other military vehicles, and negotiators started communicating with those inside. They learned that David Koresh was badly wounded from the shootout. They also reported that a woman and 12-year-old child had been killed and later another male member was found dead. I mean, a lot of people died, but this was just in the early stages. So they're trying to use all this shit in their negotiations to be like, hey, man, you're hurt. Let's not let anybody else get hurt. We can work this out, blah, 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 all their fucking tactics and shit. That day, through phone contact, negotiators convinced Koresh and others that spoke for him to release four children. They kept asking for more, but Koresh had demands. He's like, put me on the radio. I have some fucking dumb shit to say. <laughs> so they put this statement that he made on the radio, quote, 
My father, my God, who sits on the throne in heaven has given me a book of seven seals. In Revelations 10, verse seven of this sealed book, the mystery of God is to be finished. As God has declared to his servants, the prophets in Revelations 22, I come. My reward, which is the books, is within me to give unto every man with the knowledge of the seven seals. Koresh said he would release two kids every time it was played. So 10 kids were released over the next several hours and into the morning of March 1st. So this is his whole fucking thing. He's the prophet, right, who has morphed into actually being the Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, he graduated. <laughs> yeah. And he and all of his followers are like, God talks to David. God talks to him. And he's the only one who God will tell how to interpret the seven seals and the end of the world. And if he gets this puzzle right, which he will, because God's telling him about it. So we mm -hmm. have to listen to him. If that all happens correctly, we will end up where God is. So he's crucial to these people. Over the next couple of days, negotiations are constant. What? Just, I just hate. I, yeah. <laughs> Over the next couple of days, negotiations are constantly happening between Koresh giving sermons over the phone and making paranoid threats of children dying if the ATF and FBI don't do what he wants. He's like, you're going to be responsible for all these kids' deaths and da-da-da. Kids and adult women continue to be slowly released, like very few, a couple at a time, over long periods of time. Koresh, who's not doing great, is there with two gunshot wounds. They, they were getting reports then from this follower who was a nurse inside. So they kept getting reports of, you know, OK, he has a through and through bullet wound in like his side or whatever. And something else like he, it clipped the top of his hip. He's peeing blood a little bit. It wasn't enough to kill him right away, which ugh. it's March 2nd. OK, a couple days later, he promises to surrender if they broadcast a sermon on the radio and on TV that he gives. At this point, they were estimating there were over 100 people still in the compound, including more than 20 kids. So they spend that whole day going back and forth. Different reps for Koresh, along with Koresh, are on the phone, just fucking reading revelations and proselytizing. As agreed upon, there's a stretcher for Koresh that four of his besties were going to carry him out on. That's what they agreed on. But then on the morning of March 3rd, this fucking dude goes back on the deal and tells them that he will surrender when he receives, quote, further instructions from God. Okay. I told Gabe this yesterday. I have read the entire FBI transcript of the negotiations. It's wild and it's high key annoying as fuck. <laughs> Basically, it's this. In in these first days, Koresh is pissed that the authorities are creeping in. They've got tanks and all this shit. And he's like, you're coming in inch by inch and I don't fucking like it and I'm not going to do what you want. He tells him, we've been preparing for this shit since 1985. Their arsenal is fucking extensive. And he lets them know that. He and the other dudes he's speaking through go off on preaching tangents for extended amounts of time, talking about David and Goliath, the seven seals, God's law versus the law of the land. Like, we don't follow your law. So whatever you're fucking trying to tell us doesn't matter. Mm -hmm because we follow the law of God. There's lots of breaks in communication with the authorities for Bible studies, worship. Koresh has taken a bunch of naps. So yeah, none of his followers that negotiators speak with will do anything without Koresh's direct instruction, which means he can stall all he wants. He's over there yeah. just waiting on God and they're waiting on him. Yeah. That's it. This whole time, the group inside is watching all the news coverage and demanding they have direct access to media outlets. Like that's what they constantly keep demanding. And negotiators refuse to give it to them. But David and his followers are like, these reports aren't accurate. They're also in there making demands for milk, which one of their most basic demands was at first they wanted six gallons of milk. And the negotiators kept trying to use that need uh, to get more kids out of the building. They're like, send us the kids and we'll give you milk. They're like, the milk's for the fucking kids. And they're like, oh, cool, send them out. 
and we'll give them that constant stalemate of them just going, no, 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 no. Nobody was agreeing on anything. Every adult they speak with refuses to leave because they believe they're being tested. Okay. They're convinced the authorities are lying to them. These people are being shown by their prophet who now has reached fucking messiah status like i said that this is the start to the end of days this is the fight they've been preparing for so mm -hmm. now is the time to stand strong and not be tempted or tricked by what the evil outside is telling them mm -hmm. you know there's just enough truth in what this guy preaches of like what's easily predictable what can happen to then be able to spin to go see see mm -hmm. they don't like what we're doing yeah you're fucking full-on breaking laws yeah yeah they don't like what you're doing yeah but this is a test. This is where it's going to be the most difficult. This is where you'll be the most tempted. This is where it's going to be the scariest. Yeah. So they keep telling themselves what they were told. The negotiators are patiently going in circles with Koresh. And he keeps telling them, I'm not in charge. God has the authority. And I'm just waiting for him to give his holy instructions. Mm -hmm. This is a quote from him. If you believed you'd be shaken in your shoes for what's about to happen. You want to learn about the seven seals? The dude he was on the phone with was like, absolutely. Because he's he keeps saying, like, these guys are like, we don't want to talk to you because you don't believe in God or you don't have the same beliefs. You don't have the faith or whatever. So negotiators that did believe in God would get on and try to get in with him and be like, oh yeah, fucking Jesus, dude. And whatever, like agreed. We're, we're on the same page. So yeah. the dude's like, yeah, tell me about the seven seals, man. And Crush is like, well, I gotta wait on that. It was just so fucking annoying. Mm -hmm. One conversation with this negotiator, he says to Koresh directly, he goes, you said that you were gonna come out immediately. So if we're talking about lying, that's what you said. And Crush is like, yeah, I also said 2000 years ago that I'm coming soon. So that could mean anything. Mm. The rest of that conversation is when he's telling them that he's Christ. He is the Lord. They will know I am Christ when they make me into a corpse. So days are rolling by. Authorities cut the power off. Very few followers have trickled out over time, keeping this negotiation line open. And Koresh is still pressing for a line to the media. At one point, there's a VHS exchange so people can see his preaching from inside the compound. Jump to March 18th. The standoff has been going on for weeks. The FBI decided to take things up a notch since they're at a stalemate and they begin to implement another tactic. This is what I remember seeing on the news. Okay, so they start playing loud shit over a PA system nonstop. Mm -hmm into the compound. Babies crying, fucking Tibetan monk chants, dentist drills, nonstop shit that would make anyone fucking crazy to try and deprive them of sleep and force them out. Interrogation shit, right? Like mm -hmm. fucked up shit where they're like, this will make you crazy enough to be like, I just need to get away from this mental state. It's like torture stuff, yeah. Yeah, it didn't work. It actually made shit worse because the negotiators were trying to gain ground with those inside. And when those torture tactics got used, the trust was completely wiped. There wasn't really any happening anyway, but the tiny ground that they felt like they gained was gone. Yeah, They were up against complete entire brainwashing. In some of the transcripts I read, you could really follow them building rapport with some of these people and getting so close to getting them to make a different choice mm -hmm. before getting sucked back in. Some of his main dudes, you know, like they were talking about their wives and, oh, your wife has a child with David? Oh, but, you know, try like just really fucking trying. Mm -hmm. None of it worked. 
On March 24th, Koresh broke off all negotiations. He's done talking. He needs to work on his important shit, writing his Seven Seals book. And I'm sure he could see some cracks happening with these people as well and wanted to cut off that communication. Yeah. Ten days later, Koresh sends out word that he will surrender after writing a manuscript in which he will reveal the contents of the Seven Seals referred to in the Book of Revelations in the Bible. Remember, that's his job as the prophet. He's fucking God's stenographer. Now, this whole thing, ATF shows up. This started in February. February. The FBI is getting sick of this shit and can see no end. It had gone on for 51 days. I forgot that it was that long. 51 days. Yeah. It was considered the biggest gunfight to happen in the States since the Civil War. It was a, a fucking war. The FBI was in a war. Hmm. And the ATF, I get The ATF was still there. They got negotiators. They've got fucking tanks. They've got all this shit around this compound. At 6.30 a.m. on April 19th, FBI tanks drove into the side of the giant building. They sent hundreds of rounds of tear gas inside. There was already diesel fuel everywhere because... They had also destroyed the tanks that were on the compound used to power the generators, right? Mm -hmm. The building went up in flames and Mount Carmel burned to the ground that day. Left inside were 76 Branch Davidians, 23 of them children, along with David Koresh. On May 2nd, it was announced that dental records and x-rays confirmed that they had found Koresh's body. He had a gunshot wound to the forehead. Of the few survivors, many served time in federal prison for a variety of crimes. They were all released by 2013. There were a very small group of followers who continued to believe Koresh would be coming back to Earth, Messiah style. There was also a second group who split off calling themselves the Branch, the Lord, Our Righteousness. Charles Pace leads the church today, which was rebuilt over the site of Waco. But it's cool. Don't worry. He's teaching totally cool shit. Uh, he teaches that the Clintons and Bushes had Koresh assassinated because he knew too much about their human trafficking and pedophilia. Oh. The guy who married children. Yeah, right. And raped children that he was too in the know. So they had him assassinated. They also have a gift shop where you can buy all the Trump merch your deep state conspiracy heart desires. Ew. In an interview with Kevin Cook, author of Waco Rising, David Koresh, the FBI, and the Birth of America's Militias, Pace said this, quote, Donald Trump did the right thing. He had him as him as in George H.W. Bush arrested for his crimes. George Bush did not die of natural causes in 2018. They executed him for treason. This will all come out in the near future. Sweet. There it is. Next week, we have season six, episode eight, Doubt. An art teacher is accused of rape. And it turns into a he said, she said thing. Mm. I like gently read different descriptions. Gently. Because I don't want to like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to um, get too much information because I don't want to remember the episode. Right. Until I'm doing it, if I remember it. Yeah. Hey, rate and review us. Email us at svupod at gmail.com. Send us shit at P.O. Box 176, DeForest, Wisconsin, 53532. Follow us on all social media, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere at svupod. Get pod merch and more at svupod.com. We got a tea public. We got other shit going up. Join the Facebook group, SVU Pod Elite Squad. Chat group is Walk and Talk. Book club, fucking single tomato. People are amazing. Hashtag little bit loud for indie pods. If you are an indie pod, use it. If you're looking for indie pods, search it. Join the Patreon. We got tons of extra. You want a bunch of ridiculous shit? Join the Patreon. 
because it's there. It's stupid. <laughs> We've been recording for two hours and 41 minutes at this point, And most of that will be on the Patreon. I yep. I can't imagine we're going to leave a ton of it uh, for the regular shit. We have to hide how fucking stupid we are behind a paywall. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> call or text yeah. us and leave us your questions, stories, and comments. We love getting texts. We love getting voicemails. Please do. Ghost stories. Call and just straight ghost story for Gabe. If you call us and you want us to fucking air your shit, read your shit, play your shit, we will. Yeah, want some want some advice? You want some bad you want advice? Some really awful advice from people who are barely surviving? Do you, do you have bad advice from a couple of stupid bitches? Cause call <laughs> us. We, cause call us. Call us at 1-920-345-7005. That's 1-920-345-7005. Uh, thanks. Love you. Thanks. Love you. Love bye. Because I've been eating a ton of pickles because I can just bloop and there's no juice. No yeah. juice on me. My life is crazy. <laughs> I mean, you're, I'm assuming you're not hard because you're at work. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to put on your fingerless gloves and come outside on the street tonight and sing around a burn barrel of fire with Frank Stallone and a few other guys? Why we all harmonize? Take it back. <laughs> do, 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 do. Take it back. That's from Rocky. Yeah. It is weird that you would have a bird voice as a... Oh, God. I'm such a complex white woman. <laughs> You're so complex. <laughs> Benson watches from a car. Throw your tie over your shoulder before you have the cigarette. Okay. Okay. That's, I'm sorry. It's my last one. Mm -mm. Okay. Okay. I love you so much. I love you too. What kind of red wine <laughs> pairs with this fucking steak? All right. <laughs> Dude, how hard you came into that. <laughs> and to our Elite Squad patrons, Sonia W., Marissa M., Elkie H., Annie G., Mary D., Andrew, Andrew, Rebecca D., Miranda B., Shelby W., Lex, Emily T., Kayla W., Mallory G., Bonita R., Marin, Vanessa, Melanie G., Courtney W., Ursula S., Kate H., Uyana, Kayla J., Catherine M., Kate P., Jessica S., Nicole M, Acacia V, Katarina G, Danielle W, Kelsey D, Jana M, Joshua H, Tammy J, Bear, Crystal, Lucy M, Trisha S, Sammy D, Mac, Mac Attack, Sammy D. Oh, Sam D. We didn't say Sammy. Hey, little Sammy. Hey, little Sammy D. Casey W, Abby W, Alexis J, Lauren T, Kaylin B, Camille Z, Nisha G, Maggie D, Kaylin. Kate, oof, woof. <laughs> Katie M, Eliza W, Crystal B, Jessica P, Zan and J, Nada M, Sin, Christina D, Madison H, Emily. Aww. Aww. <laughs> no. Aww. 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 Emily. Aww. <laughs> no, but then I. Emily. Aww. I was disappointed that I didn't think of one. And then I hopped on my motorcycle and I fucking got out of here. Okay. Emily O. Emily fucking Vic O. Victoria B, Scout G, Melissa M, Desiree D, Drew B, Amberly C, Sapphire, Monica K, Katie S, Trish S, Angela D, Brenna T, Andrea M, Natasha S, Andrea H, Al H, Nikki R, and Sarah. Caitlin S, Emily D, Katie H, Lexi Y, Nikki R, Burn, Jenna B, Christina D, Catherine A B, Ariana, and Madeline K. 
We love you and appreciate you. Thanks for making Thank it possible you. for us to be able to do this. This was a really fun episode. I love you. It was. Love you too.